0: I hope hope everyone can hear me. Uh, My name is Owen Hopkins. I'm the RA's Architecture Programme Manager. It's my pleasure to be chairing this evening's discussion. Now, two weeks ago, uh, some of you may remember, in the first two events in the series, we looked at the costs and effects of the housing crisis and then, conversely, the upsides of what good housing can unlock. We heard a variety of sometimes quite opposing views But what it seems I think everyone can agree on is the need for more housing. Indeed, if we were to reduce the housing crisis to one single thing, it would be a shortage of homes. And I've done a little bit of research into the uh, manifestos of the political parties, uh, and almost all of them say if elected on 7th of May, they will build new homes. The Tories say they'll build 100,000 new homes specifically for first-time buyers, Labour aimed to build 200,000 by 2020 and offer some tentative reforms to the private rental sector. The Lib Dems are more ambitious, committing to 300,000 new homes per year, which is actually more than most studies uh, seem to suggest that we need to keep up with demand. And I'll do this by building a new generation of garden cities, UKIP looked to the potential of brownfield sites, managed by the slightly surprisingly interventionist founding of a brownfield agency. The Greens are the most radical, aiming for 500,000 new homes per year by 2020, delivered largely by local councils and backed up by rent controls and other reforms to the private sector. So it's a smorgasbord board of ambition and feasibility, But I think with all parties largely in agreement that there is this need to build more housing, if not in agreement about the extent and the means. So if we can agree on that, things become slightly more difficult when it comes to where we might build this new housing. The policy for the last 30 years or so has been to concentrate on the densification of cities. London, at least, has been transformed. Yet, as investment has piled in, uh, property prices have risen to levels which are unaffordable to all, but quite a small minority distorting the social and economic dynamics of our cities. Many now lay the blame uh, at the door, maybe even the gatepost, of the Green Belt, which is seen as artificially restricting land supply and thereby pushing up prices. The Green Belt, in this view, has become a tourniquet around our cities, not just London. Opponents argue that the loosening of greenbelt restrictions will result in uh, unrestricted urban sprawl and they cite the obvious commercial uh, motivations of those who advocate the uh, releasing of these uh, restrictions. Uh, So really this is a question that crosses over all these debates in many ways. Uh, It really takes us to the heart of the nature of our economy, the nature of 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 Britain itself, how in many ways we can think about the nature of London as an economic driver of the country and particularly about the north-south divide. When we talk about housing crisis, in many ways we're talking about a phenomenon of the southeast. The conditions in the north of England, for instance, are really quite different. Um, And although this is in many ways a discussion about big ideas and uh, the broader nature of the economy, the effects of where we build new housing are almost always felt on the local level and to some degree a personal level as well, making decisions about it, discussions even difficult, often passionate, and sometimes rather heated so we 'll see where we get to this evening i 'm now going to hand over to our four speakers who i 'm very pleased to welcome and i 'm actually going to introduce them. Uh, in turn before each of them make a five-minute statement and then we'll be opening out to questions from the audience. Our first speaker is James Goff. He is the founder and director of Sterling Ackroyd, the firm of residential and commercial estate agents uh, and surveyors which he set up uh, on Curtin Road in Shoreditch in 1986. James has played a key role in the area's resurgence and transformation, becoming involved with the Young British Artists and even earning himself the nickname, the Sheriff of Shoreditch. James is a chartered surveyor and has often been involved in building preservation campaigns. So James, over to you. Thank you.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. So how do we answer the huge question of the British housing crisis? I'm a chartered surveyor, commercial residential property agent. One of the strengths and weaknesses of real estate is that it's often called a game for the whole family. Everyone has their own view on property, it is integral to the British mindset. As a young trainee surveyor, one of the early yardsticks I was taught was to liken an architect to a swan, because it's the only bird that can stick its own bill up its own bottom. Arguably in regards to real estate, next to a thing to an apathetic, uninspiring, compromised politician is a misguided architect. Architects, however, have a great opportunity to make a difference and often quite rightly gain an immortal reputation which surveyors like myself do not have as yet. I grew up in the Devon countryside until the age of, twen- uh, the age of 20, coming from a farming, building and business background. I came to London after completing a degree in valuations and estate management at Bristol. My study of valuations and land and buildings meant London was the place to kick off. My first job was at Edward Erdman in Grover Street, Mayfair. Edward Urban was a canny property man who acted for, amongst others, Lord Wolfson. Interestingly, involved in the Wolfson Prize, which one of my fellow speakers may mention. Towards the end of my first year, Edward Ehrman, Edward, Edward I was asked to be involved in finding a buyer for a mostly vacant building owned by the Wolfson portfolio. It was just a few minutes' walk from the Marlene Tube Station and was called the Wickhams Department Store, known in its prime, however, as the Selfridges of the East. It was well built in 1927 with a grand entrance, impressive column frontage, high ceilings, parquet floor, and great light. Despite all of this, for the 180,000 square, square feet available, the one company I could find to buy it was only prepared to pay £220,000. It was 1983 already. As a valuer, and someone who appreciates the qualities of buildings, I was therefore attracted to East London. I toured it and was overwhelmed by the wonders of Shoreditch. It was a time capsule, a mixture of mid and late Victorian buildings interspersed with 1950s and 60s monstrosities, monstrosities built on bomb sites, evoking my appreciation of the challenges of the <coughs> London property market. There were so many well-built Victorian warehouses, it abandoned the city and also had great transport links. These warehouses had been used by furniture makers, the textile trade, printers and other light industry. Many had no lifts, still keeping their derricks for loading and unloading. These warehouses were built with attractive yellow London stock, exposed wooden floors, high ceilings, great natural light and spacious lofts, and were built on basement ground and three or four upper floors. They were mostly empty, as such former occupying industries had moved out of London or even the country itself. I used to walk down the street and see owners of these buildings standing outside their unused properties, making polite conversation with those few people passing by. Thank goodness they, thank goodness they were stuck in a time capsule, as, was, as they were not worth knocking down and redeveloping. I came to church sure wanting to overcome the challenge of how these buildings could be used. I could offer cheap rents and managed to attract the creative industries, including artists, architects, and designers. The artists were the first group to move in, and I think it was fundamentally the start-up of the Young British Artist Movement. You could often go into the local pub, The Big Lair's Arms, and find the likes of Damien Hurst, Tracy Emmon, Gary Hume, and Gavin Turk. As a local agent, I, was, I proudly sponsored artists' events such as The Fate Worse Than Death, held in Hoxton Square, where Damien Hurst was making and selling spin paintings worth £1. And if you showed them your genitalia, then you got it for 50p. I understand these paintings are now selling for £25,000 or more. Shoreditch Studios soon became recognised and acclaimed. Shoreditch started to fill up. Hackney Council previously just uh, stamped Shoreditch as an area for industrial industry and very little else. Political interest uh, in the area was minimum because there were very few voters living there. However, because Hackney had a blind eye to Shoreditch, a laissez-faire attitude was adopted. Creation of B1 space that had industrial premises to also be used as offices. As rents grew, the artists, the artists uh, 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 found it difficult to afford accommodation and it became an issue, which was overcome by an unofficial creation of live-work units, whereby people could live and work in the same space. Not paying two rents, but one, and local authority residential rates were a lot cheaper than business rates. The new Shoreditch community found its own planning solutions. Lane in Shoreditch also now accommodates dozens of boutique shops, 20 bars and like, etc. And like Joe Becker in New York is recognised as one of the five hippest places in the world. Thankfully as a result the Victorian warehouses have been preserved. Perhaps Shoreditch is a victim of its own success. Moved workers become private residential accommodation and many young people aspire to live in Shoreditch creating a new demand for housing Bringing along with it, it's residential tower blocks which are now rising up. I'm concerned by some of these proposed tower blocks as they do threaten the livability and human scale of the area. Many hotels have also been built in Shoreditch. Another 1,200 rooms have been planned for the next three years. Will this be a, a good impact? Will this have a good impact? When I first came to Shoreditch, you could buy any vacant warehouse for up to £20 a square foot freehold. We are now selling flats in such buildings for over £1,500 a foot. Depending, depending on who you believe, we, depending on who you believe, there's something between four and nine hundred thousand new homes need to be built within the next ten years. At Stirling Academy, we believe six hundred thousand new homes are needed, and can be achieved by developing 1.3% of the Greater London london brownfield site area while preserving all green spaces this is based on 2.3 people per household private payments by developers for affordable housing are a mess so-called government guidelines suggest that up to 50 percent of all private developments should be affordable should be affordable housing it is in reality local authorities and developers often agree 20-25 percent some of the de- developers negotiate this down to 10 percent you cannot blame them for doing so this is they're there to make their investors and themselves profits, and they're working within the law. The threshold of affordable housing starts at 10 units or more, which institutes and councils are currently challenging and taking to the Court of Appeal. The Greater London Authority states that 420,000 homes need to be built over the next 10 years, of which 150,000 are affordable and 5,000 for long-term <coughs> market rental. All our figures come from official sources. So this is my last. <laughs> Thank you. Another important point I'd like to briefly mention is the countryside. Apparently 13% of England is protected by so-called Greenbelt land, and the idea that the countryside should be protected at all costs is wrong. It needs to be used for the better good of the UK as a whole. The large green belt around London needs to also be brought into play to help London's housing crisis. And again, a sensible master plan, good design and consultation with local residents needs to also be applied. Here, allowing for building accommodation in town to help London's housing crisis. The Planning Act of 1947 was mostly responsible for the Greenbelt and was made a long time ago, and lots of things have happened in the meantime. The new town of Milton Keynes in Buckinghamshire was founded in 1967 and is easily criticised for its poor, modernist, unfriendly design. Because of this, it has disproportionately strengthened the argument for no further development of, of, development of new towns within Greenbelt areas. The answer to our housing crisis is a proper collection of the facts, so we're all singing from the same hymn sheet. We need politicians to raise their game and in an unselfish political way allow for 10 stroke 15 year master plans to be made and adhered to. The issue of affordable housing payments by developers needs to be fairly set, but please excuse the pun and set in stone so one knows where they stand also helping land prices to become less speculative. The good design by architects is a very important role to play. And don't worry, for good work, architects should be well rewarded. But, there must also be proper consultations with locals and others. I would I end by saying, I, 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 I would end by saying, I like to see London, the Londonness of London protected. And two relevant fundamentals, whilst growing up in the countryside, applied to me over the issue of the housing crisis. The first one was that my school, one of my school speech days, where the former master of the rolls, Lord Denning, stated, "It is every Englishman's privilege to pay his taxes." And the second fundamental, which I learned as a Cub Scout, were the immortal words of Lord Baden Powell: "Try and leave this place in a better way than when you found it." Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, James. Uh, next, we have Loretta Lise, uh, who is Professor of Human Geography at the University of Leicester, uh, which she joined in 2013 from King's College London. Uh, her specific uh, research expertise is in gentrification and urban regeneration and the urban geographies of young people. She has many publications in this field, including uh, a publication from June 2014, entitled Staying Put and anti Uh, gentrification handbook for council estates in London. Loretta.
2: (laughs) Okay, thank you. Okay, so the title of tonight then that I was given was City Country Suburb. (coughs) So I want to start by saying that the 21st century is an urban one. For the most part, we're all urban now. We all have urban mindsets, even those living in the suburbs or rural areas. Some have called this planetary urbanisation drawing on the French philosopher Henri Lefebvre's hypothesis of the complete urbanisation of society. So I want to start by saying that the traditional divisions between city, country, suburb, urban, suburban and rural are breaking down. We've got gentrifiers with suburban mindsets living on gentrification frontiers in inner cities. They're not the left liberal gentrifiers of the past, but conservative with a small C, and indeed sometimes with a big C. The new-build developments in our city centres that they live in are sold as new urban, but they're really suburban in character. Urban hipsters, and I think there's probably plenty in the room tonight, hark back to a simpler, even rural way of life, identified through your organic food, environmental consciousness. Indeed, there are echoes here of the kind of rustified lifestyles that post-war pioneer gentrifiers enacted, with their conspicuous thrift, in renovating old houses and getting back to basics, stripping wood floors, open plan, all the kind of aesthetics that Habitat and now IKEA have mass-produced. The suburbs themselves are more urban now. As new people have moved into London's post-war suburbs, they brought with them the demands associated with gentrification for good coffee shops, for waitrose, for gastropubs, for urban parks, urban playgrounds. So planners and policymakers need to wake up to the reality of the breakdown between the old modernist categories of city, suburb and rural. This will mean rethinking planning and policymaking. Some have mooted re-ruralisation as the solution to planetary urbanisation, but realistically, that isn't going to happen. The way forward socially, economically and environmentally is through rethinking cities themselves, and the green belt, I think, should remain. So that's just what I wanted to say, and just quickly to answer some of the questions that were put to me. Where should we put housing in Britain? I think we should infill and densify our main cities and protect rural areas. Not only is this the way forward in terms of environmental sustainability, but economically it makes good sense in terms of jobs and services. But infill and densification needs to be thought about creatively, as it alone can re-spatialise and democratise the future of cities. If we draw on the best aspects of the city, the suburbs and the rural, if we draw them in, if we plan them in, rather than separating these three out and segregating them, we have a whole new take on the notion of mixity. And of course the notion of mixity has been almost obsessive with the previous uh, government. I think one of the things that will break down some of the problems is a nationally efficient high-speed public transport network like Switzerland has that enables us to rebalance the economy between north and south, northern cities and southern cities. At a local level, I think we need better and faster public transit, and already property values are jumping around in London, around those locations that are newly developing rail, tube, and even cycle pathways, demonstrating the real value that the public thinks in terms of spatial capital. Enabling everybody's spatial capital, their ability to live in a strategic location according to how they live and how they work is really, really important and it needs to be brought in to how and where we build new housing. So for example, densifying around transit hubs like has been done in Barnet in, in North London. Good idea. The downside is it's often at the expense of council estates and council tenants who are pushed out. It may even be desirable at the national level to rethink what we do with small shrinking towns Maybe like Detroit, we bulldoze. Maybe we bring them back to the original villages that they were. A good topic of debate, I think. But my view of garden cities is that all big cities that we already have are redeveloped as garden cities, but really the better term is green cities, ones that encompass nature and are environmentally friendly. But all of this is dependent on planning democratically. The core issue of planning theory and practice, according to the American (coughs) urbanist Jane Jacobs, is fundamentally about the allocation, distribution, and alteration of property rights. Planning needs to get back to its reformist roots. Planners need to start realistic and strategic conversations about the social and economic reform of our cities. All housing, all new housing, needs to be affordable for the populations who need it, and as James was saying, affordable housing is not affordable for the vast majority of people. Council housing, social rented housing, needs to be retained. It needs to be grown, it needs to be protected. We need to stop right to buy. We need to stop the significant demolition of council estates. We need to make sure that if registered social landlords take over council estates, the rents don't go through the roof. The state, I think, has an obligation to protect us from gentrification. It also has an obligation to house the poor and the less well off, and even beyond that, to allow middle-class populations access to social housing, if they so desire. The cult of property in the UK needs to be undermined, not supported. Homes are for living in, they're not investments. And I think given the volume of investment in real estate, not just in London but also throughout the country, I think we may yet be in real trouble because there's been a kind of over-escalation of money and investment into what Marxists call the secondary circuit of capital, that's real estate. So many people are still saying, well, gentrification's a good thing. Well, the evidence from 50 years of gentrification research by academics and policymakers says, no, it isn't. In fact, there was a a report just last week from the What Works Centre for Local Economic Growth into the regeneration of estates, renewal of estates, which today is the kind of gentrification that's happening in London that says, Overall, the evidence suggests that the measurable economic impacts on local economies in terms of employment, wages or deprivation are not large and in fact they're often zero. In contrast, these projects have a positive impact on property prices. So all the kind of forms of urban regeneration that we're seeing in the moment are actually gentrification and this is one of the problems. We need urban regeneration that is not gentrification. That's it really, thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Now, to my left is David Rudlin, who is director of Urbed, which their website says does what our name suggests, by specializing in urban design and sustainability in an urban context. Their work traverses regeneration for public and private sector clients, master planning and planning strategy at a range of scales. Uh, as has already been alluded to, their Garden City project for the imaginary city of Uh, Uster, I've got that right. Uster won the Wolfson Economics Prize uh, last year. David.
3: Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm, I haven't written anything so I thought I'd respond to what was said. But I'm, I'm sitting here slightly nervous that I've been singled out as the suburban person here which, I, which I, I'm not. So um, <laughs> I, 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 There's a risk that we all start agreeing with each other because I mean, I've had a, a very sheltered life. I, I've spent my last 30 years of professional life um, working in the inner cities um, lovely places like Toxtuff in Liverpool and Moss Side in Manchester and so on and compared to the Greenbelt they're an absolute paradise I can tell you. The, the Greenbelt um, and, and the discussions going on about housing outside cities are, are are a minefield in comparison to the, the work that's being d- done in it. It's not, not literally, obviously, but. Um, and <laughs> I, 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 did, I had an interview with a, um, a prospective client um, just before Christmas, and, and they said, Could, could you just um, run through your experience of doing planning appeals and, and, and appearing at public inquiries? And, and of course, the answer was never have done that because we've done loads of large planning applications and never had one refused. Um, and if he talks to people working in in, in rural areas, they, they find that extraordinary. So, um, since winning the Wolfson Prize, I've, I've had the, um, the the interesting experience of going around talking to rooms full of people, um, rooms full of planning lawyers and barristers and planning consultants who spend their entire life uh, working for landowners to undermine the planning system to generate to to, to to extract a piece of land with a housing permission, which can then generate the landowner lottery-winning scale. Windfalls of money, and on the other hand, talking to rooms full of local authority planners looking slightly beleaguered has to be said, who are writing reams and reams of information, copper plating their policies because they know that every line is going to be challenged, every line is going to be scrutinised, and if they make one mistake, then they will let something through. The housing that we're getting as a result of this is the um, is the unplanned result of a chaotic process. It's not actually planning at all. Um, And it's incredibly depressing. And I've also had people suggest to me that this is actually no mistake, um, that if you're in government and you want to allow housing to happen but you don't want to be blamed for it, then actually the system that we have is very well designed to actually make sure that the local authorities get the blame if housing is stopped and they also get the blame if it's allowed. Um, And actually what we have is a, a system which is completely dysfunctional uh, at the time, and the reason it's essential, is to, to be honest, is because we have at the moment a well, we we have at the moment a government who, on the one hand, doesn't like planning because it's um against the free market, on the other hand, loves planning because it stops housing being built in in their constituencies, and so we have this complete sort of dichotomy of, of, of views. Um, anyway, those are people who haven't read our Wolfson submission. Um, have been surprised, and Lord Rogers was very disappointed in me um, uh, for writing it, because they've assumed that we've given up what we've been doing for years, which is promoting urban development. So now, In the 90s, we wrote a piece of work for the for Friends of the Earth, which, um, which suggested that 75% of all new homes could be built within urban areas. Um, and then the government policy for many years, up until the, the, the recent um, NPPF, was that 60% of housing should be built within urban areas, Um, And up until the recession, we were just about achieving that. We we were more than achieving that, in fact. I think that we peaked at 81% of all housing was built in urban areas um, (coughs) in about 2008-2009. The problem is that actually the housing that we stopped being built outside um, um, urban areas didn't transfer onto brownfield land. It just didn't get built at all. And so for all those years, actually, we ended up under-providing housing. Even during the height of the property boom... We weren't providing um, 200,000, 250,000 homes a year, which is the amount of homes we need. Even at the peak of the boom, we weren't doing that. And as as Sean will no doubt say, part of that that is because we're not building council housing, but we're also not not actually creating conditions where we can build the amount of homes that we need. So in our Wilson essay, we said, yes, we should be building 60% of all homes within urban areas. And if you're Sheffield and Liverpool and Manchester, you can probably build all the homes that you need within your urban area. However, there are places where that's not possible, and we talked about the fictional city of Uster, um, which of course doesn't exist, although I I did a presentation in in York um, last week and revealed to them that it was actually based upon York, which came as a bit of a shock to them, to be honest, Um, and places like Cambridge and places like Oxford, and and, and quite a few sort of medium-sized towns which simply don't have the capacity within their urban area to accommodate the growth that they need. And the only way that they are going to allow themselves to grow, and, and we can have a debate about whether they should or not, because there's people that say these places should just stop growing and should stay where they are. But if they're going to grow, they need to grow outwards. And if we're going to allow them to grow outwards, we shouldn't do so by the free market allowing things to let rip. We should do so by planning properly. And planning properly should involve a mechanism for loosening the green belt, for allowing these places to grow out into the green belt in the same way that Edinburgh once grew into its green belt. Wasn't the green belt at the time, of course, when it built Edinburgh Newtown. Edinburgh Newtown was built on greenfields. Bloomsbury was built upon greenfields. Mayfair was built upon greenfields. All these places were built positively as in a way that added to the quality of, of what they were. In this way, it's not the dichotomy that the title of this session suggests <coughs> of town or country or suburbs. It's actually about creating a, a, a situation where cities can. Towns and cities can expand in a way that the actual city expands rather than becoming something which is suburban. Um, so, anyway, I'm going to finish there. Thank you. Great.
0: Thank you very much. And finally, we have Sean Spears, who is the chief executive of the Campaign to Protect Rural England, which, and again quoting from their website, works to protect, promote, and enhance our towns and countryside to make them better places to live, work, and enjoy now and in the future. He was appointed to that role in 2004, before which time he was chief executive of the Association of British Credit Unions, and before that he was an MEP. Sean.
4: Great. Thanks, Owen. Well, i would address the question, do we need more homes? Uh, uh, We take it as read, we do, CPRE says we do need more homes. Uh, We've been building far too few for a long time, but I would caution, I read out the manifesto commitments, I would caution against saying that committing to new homes is the same as building them because there's a long history that actually that targets <laughs> uh, and building are different things uh, and then we have to consider um, how they're shared out Danny Dawling wrote an interesting book last year pointing out that actually we've got more space per person, uh, the space per person is growing every year even in London but it's unequally shared out So there is a question about who the houses are for, and a question of how we address uh, equality. Um, There's a question about what they're they're for, uh, and very often they're for investment, including uh, investment by overseas buyers, and it would be really good if the passes, as well as committing to building more homes, committed to stable house prices, that housing should be uh, meeting reasonable need, not just uh, investment in the future. And when you get to the rural angle, what villages need, and market towns, or villages particularly need, is affordable houses. There's, there's no uh, need in many villages for lots more market housing. Uh, you could, In a sort of picture postcard Cotswold village, you could build thousands of houses and sell them. But what the real need is for, is for uh, affordable houses for local people. So I just caution against the uh, uh, kind of crew focus on numbers. We need to think about who they're for. We need also to think about quality, placemaking, getting it right and not just building loads and loads of units. In a way we need to clone uh, um, the, the commitment that Nye Bevan had after the war to quality of housing with Howard McMillan's uh, commitment to the numbers of housing and then we'd, we'd, we'd uh, be making a bit of progress. So what's stopping us building housing? Uh, the blame is often put on NIMBIS and undoubtedly there is a need, if you're going to build housing, there's a need to get consent. And if you work properly with people, uh, I believe you can get consent. If you impose developments on people, you're less likely to get it. If you focus on quality, you're more likely to get it. If people just assume that any houses that are put up near them are not going to come with infrastructure, not going to come with services, are going to be ugly, poorly designed, and make the place less uh, attractive to live in, well, it's not surprising, whether it's rural or urban, if they oppose that housing. Is planning the problem? Well, we've had a planning uh, system since 1947. Uh, I, David made the point about uh, the distortions of the brownfield first, but actually, I think the real change came when we stopped building council housing. For 35 years after the Second World War, we built houses on the uh, scale that we now say we need. Uh, for 35 years since, we've struggled to build 200,000 houses, even in the biggest boom. The assumption was the private sector would take up the slack when the state stopped building. It simply hasn't done so and hasn't got an interest in doing so. And now you have a real concentration in the house building industry of a few big builders who have no economic interest in massively increasing their output. And the small and medium-sized enterprises that used to build only 30 or so years ago, two-thirds of our houses, now build less than a third and falling. So you need to do something about the house building industry. And that would include things like... Uh, self-build. Is the Greenbelt stopping houses being built? Well, of course the green belt stopping houses being built where some developers would like to build houses. The, the purpose of the green belt is to stop urban sprawl and to focus development on uh, existing cities and to aid urban regeneration, and it's been fantastically successful in that. Greenbelt can be redrawn uh, in exceptional circumstances as part of a proper planning process, and CPRE has supported redrawing Greenbelt boundaries over to, in, in Cambridge, in Gloucester, in York, and elsewhere. At the moment, we're not doing so in Oxford, and this is an irritation to David and Erbed, but the fact is that Oxford City Council is, is zoning for um, employment, land where you could build homes. It's a city with uh, a very vibrant economy, uh, a, a growing university, but land is being zoned for employment instead of building houses. Uh, and also, there's a plan in, in Oxfordshire to, to have 100,000 extra jobs in the county, the most rural county in the southeast, a county with full employment, well, no wonder there's a housing problem if you want to get 100,000 extra jobs there. So how do you uh, spread development more evenly across the country is another issue. Is, is the price of land stopping us building the houses we need? Well, obviously, the price of land it, is excessive, but when Milton Keynes was first being built, the price of land... Uh, amounted to about 1% of the price of building the house. Now in some areas it's 40%. And what's happened since we built Milton Keynes is the state has lost the the desire to properly capture the uplift in land value that comes from development, which is why landowners are coining it in. um, Doing absolutely nothing except sitting on the land, then it's given planning permission and suddenly it's worth massively more than it was before. There must be a way of capturing that uplift in land value uh, to, to control house prices, um, so really what i 'm saying is it 's not just about planning. these are the reason we 're not building enough houses, and actually the reason we 're not building good enough quality houses, which is, a, is a, a major concern as well, is not just to do with planning. I think we need a land use strategy uh, in England, akin to the one they 're developing in Scotland. Uh, Nobody wants another major upheaval of the planning system now, but we need to start thinking, I think, about how we get uh, a planning system that isn't the chaos that you suggest or the developer-led system that many CPRE members in the Shires would think they're encountering. We need to think about taxation of land and housing, which is way off the political agenda, far too difficult. Uh, The Daily Mail wouldn't like it. Well, there's serious stuff to be considered there. As I say, we need to think about the quality of development and placemaking. As Loretta said, we need to think about tenure as well and not just assume that the one ten, tenure which everybody should be made to have is owner occupation. Shelter did a report about 20 years ago, which, uh, 10 years ago, which suggested that there were a lot of people um, who were asset rich but income poor living in substandard housing conditions because they couldn't afford to do up the houses they were, they were living in. You know, We shouldn't be driving people just into owner occupation because there's some... Notion that the best investment you can ever make is is gambling on property. We we should desire stable house prices. So in short, I think we need more sophistication in addressing this problem. We need more ambition, and actually, at the end of the day, we're going to need more planning.
5: Thank you.
0: Right, well, thank you very much to all of our speakers. Now it's over to you for any comments, questions you'd like to make. We have two microphones which are available uh, for you to ask any questions. We've got any hands yet. There's there's one here. If, if you wouldn't mind saying <coughs> who you are and waiting for the mic. Thank you. Is this working?
4: Yes. Yes. And my name is Sam Corder, I'm an architect. I, I recently uh, read three times a book by Carolyn Steele called Hungry City. Mm-hmm. Who's read it on the panel? Okay. It seems that those that might be cautious about building in the in the Green Belt have probably read it. Those that haven't might not have read it. The green light isn't just a sort of city people to sort of float around with some cows. It's what, it's what produces the food that, that all these people are living here eat. And I worry a lot about not having any food left. <laughs> what would you say to that?
3: <clears throat> Shall
4: I? It doesn't come from supermarkets, it? it comes from fields. <laughs> so there, there, there's an, there's, yeah, there's an issue sense. of
3: scale. Um, and, and a lot of people talk about this debate and think, what we talk, what we, you, know, you, you build housing in the green belt or on green fields, and actually you're going to concrete over the, 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 the urban area. I mean, we worked out that in Uster, which is fictional, admittedly, um, that if you took the green belt and you doubled the size of the town, you're taking about five or six percent of the green belt. You're actually not taking very much. Um, land And actually there's, there's only 12% of the land in the UK is built up at the moment. So I take the point and actually we talked about the idea of the, the area around us to being used for market gardening and various things like that which linked into the food production of the city. But actually we're not taking all the agricultural land. we are taking a tiny bit of it to actually accommodate housing growth in areas like this. And so <coughs> there, there is an issue of scale which people don't get their head around in terms of how much land we're actually talking about. you're talking about
4: growth over per year... We no, that's over so years. Sorry, My my, my,
6: my,
3: my <coughs> five <coughs> my five percent was over forty fifty years. So doubling the size of a city, you wouldn't do in a year. That's over forty fifty years.
4: Hmm. And what do you do
3: in fifty years? Yeah. Well, then you then you, then you. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in fifty years' time? <laughs> we, we,
4: we hit a precipice for a problem don't we? if we just keep building more houses for more people. I, I think less
1: food. No, no, no. I think you're being an alarmist. Art, uh, food. <laughs> 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 You know, our food buying you know, process is very, very sophisticated. We buy from countries, we buy from abroad. Uh, countries produce of t- cheaper than we can. And we help them, they help us. And you know, we're not like Poland, where... Do you, do you want to go into a situation where we all get given a quarter of an acre and we have to grow what we... Everything we, we eat, we have to grow. You know, forget it. I mean, we need to look at the... We need to look at the bigger picture. And, uh, and the laws of economics define no man, you know?
4: I, I wouldn't be quite, quite as uh, confident uh, there with, you know, in terms of where we're getting our food from, the impact of climate change on a lot of the markets we're buying from and so on. I do think that we need to think about um, food resilience. Uh, I mean, I, I, I understand the point that it's only a relatively small part of, of the, say, the Oxford or York Green Belt you, you're talking about in your Wolfson Prize entry. Uh, the, the rhetoric from sort of a lot of the critics of Greenbelt is it's only monocultural farmland. It's not got any environmental value. And actually, CPRE's line is we, give, we need to give it better. We need to give it more environmental value, but it's important also um, for, for, for food growing. I think the, the bigger problem is, and the point you, I think, were sort of heckling about uh, is kind of what do you do after you expand the Greenbelt? Once you do it again, you do it again. Um, David has talked about taking a confident bite out of the Greenbelt, and that's it. The, the problem is nobody really believes that because Greenbelt exists to contain the growth and concentrate the growth within the city of cities that are very vibrant and dynamic. And if there wasn't the Greenbelt, they would naturally sprawl out. Oxford, Cambridge, London, there is a real question. Do we want them to um, carry on being the magnets of all the growth or do we really want to sort of get serious about generating other parts of the, uh, of the country? Because I don't think you can just rely on Oxford and Cambridge and London, or that corridor kind of being the uh, be-all and end-all of UK growth, which seems to be
0: what a lot of people are assuming. Yeah, so there's a question on this side. but well, there is actually there's three. Four. <laughs> the uh, gentleman with the glasses uh, was the first hand go up. And we'll take the next question or observation straight after, and we'll answer them together. <clears throat>
5: Thank you. My name is Tom Ball. I'm an architect, planner, urban designer. I've worked in different parts of the world. I was involved in the master plan for Milton Keynes, and before that I concentrated on housing, council housing as it was. But what I would... I've got really two questions for, for the members of the panel. Um, Planning has been completely destroyed in the terms that planning was set up in 1947. We've had government after government, and particularly <coughs> this current government, that sees no actual moral responsibility for providing homes and good conditions for the community. Now, that was very much the case in the 1960s when I was also involved, when the government put out a survey and said what is the need for housing what is the number of housing at that stage the the report said in order to meet the need not demand demand is a mis- is a mysterious and wrong word to be using the need then was to arrive at a target of building 400000 dwellings annum. That's all kinds of dwellings. 400,000. We in about three years and then what the government did was said, right, how are we going to do that? And they set up something called the National Building Agency. People don't know about this any longer. Um, And and that developed standards. It accepted the Parker-Morris space standards for housing um, and it, it, in about three years, it was approaching the the ta- total of four hundred thousand. So, uh, planning has got has been destroyed, utterly destroyed. Um, saying that the the private sector will provide the houses that are needed is absolute nonsense. There has to be direction, and there needs to be planning. And last thing I would say. The, the absolute lunacy of what is being said about the growth of London accommodating fifty thousand dwellings, says Boris in a year a- absolute nonsense. Anyone who knows about the center of London realizes that London has already reached capacity it 's not quibbling about what happens in the in the Green belt. The central areas of London cannot cope, so we it, bring back planning. Please, the four speakers, insist that government bring, brings back planning. Great. Thank you. Thank you.
7: Uh, I'm uh, David. I'm a um, I spend uh, most of my time in London, but I go back to the northeast a lot, and the most dramatic difference uh, you can't imagine between uh, London and the north and I think particularly uh, many of the things that Loretta said sort of uh, resonated with me in terms of do you have a stage withdrawal, I think possibly from some areas. But I, th- I think with many people here, I was quite surprised to find <coughs> that actually London's population has got back to its post-Second World War level, which rather suggests to me that, which absolutely you know, fascinated me, I think, oh my God, surely we would have m- many more people in London than we did then which suggests perhaps that the densification that Loretta suggests is something that really we need, and also perhaps in our regional cities to concentrate on those where we think what can be growth targets. I find this whole idea of building on the green belt rather interesting, because if you say, well, well, what do you mean when you build on the green belt? Do you build in those little con, you know, concentric rings that ever get larger and larger? Or do you build sort of little polyps or something on one side or the other? I think that's a... And I think we have to remember also is that sometimes when I go through the suburbs, I think actually they're the slums of the future that we've got. And by expanding more, are we actually going to create more slums? What we really do need, as the rest suggests, is probably more identification of use where we'll have more, more things happening and more interest in those areas. And we won't, you know, when you get out of London, you go through some of the suburban areas that sprawl forever, there's no you know, unremitting and attractive architecture. And you know, I think in many in many suburban locations, in many cities, there are I think the slums of the future. So by building more and more in the green belt, is that really what we're going to create there as well?
0: Okay, so. Not sure
7: I made a point there, but I did ramble on a bit. Yeah, so apologies. Thanks.
0: So it was a, a call for more state intervention mm. and uh, more densification of urban centres. Did you want to add something to? It?
2: I think I can respond to both questions. I think I think. I, th- I think we have to recognise the post-war context with you know, the whole idea of new towns. We have to think back to where the whole idea of garden cities came from, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century. And I think one of the problems at the moment is that government are coming up with these ideas from history and just pulling them out of a hat and saying, OK, we're going to have a garden city here and it's somehow going to solve A, B, C and D. It worked in somewhere else, but it's not going to do that. The other thing that's <coughs> happening is the way that many of the large council estates in London that are being severely damaged, demolished overnight, basically, many of those were built as slum-cleared settlements in themselves. So if you go back to looking at state planning and municipalisation of housing post-war, many of these bigger estates were built by the state for low-income groups. Now the state is disinvesting in them, taking them away throwing those people out and redeveloping these sites for so-called mixed-communities housing. But, of course, basically what's happening is you're doing the same thing that we did before with slum clearances. You're displacing large segments of the population. Mm-hmm. It's almost like some of the lessons from the past have not been learned, and it's the same things that keep... That's why I'm talking about creativity, <coughs> that we need to start thinking differently. We can't keep going back to old ideals and old kind of, you know, kind of planning regimens... And I think it is time to kind of move on. I've not said that very well. I'm a bit tired (laughs) tonight, but I guess you know what I mean.
0: (laughs) David, would you like to respond to the the earlier comment about a more sort of interventionist state housing policy? Because you expressed some skepticism about the role of politicians.
3: Well, politicians, I agree entirely about the interventionist state. I mean, I think think we won't get anywhere near the housing that we need until we start... Um, planning positively as a government, um, and as regions and as, as councils. I mean, we need, we need all those levels, and I agree that we should... I, I, you're not going to get me arguing against building much more council housing than we have at the moment, but I think we can also achieve much higher numbers of <coughs> other types of housing. In, in our essay, we talked about self-building, we talked about custom building, we talked about small builders, all those things. Because actually the house builders will produce what they produce every year. You, you won't get the house builders to increase their output massively. But what you need to do is add other ways of providing housing in. And 60% of housing in France is provided by self-build, self-provision. People get a site and commission someone to put their own house up. You know, they, they don't have the volume of house builders that we have. So that, I, I agree entirely with, with, with provision. In terms of building crap in the green belt, well don't build crap you know don't build new craps at low density suburbs build proper urban interventions in the green belt and don't smear it around take as sean said we said take a confident bite and plan it properly and put a tram service to it and put a local center to it and 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 do it in a way which can sustain itself Um, and just finally about growing london i mean london um, has huge potential for further growth that may that may be not popular in the room, but you know it's only back to where it was before the war. Mm-hmm. If you look at what New York is, it's a world city. I mean, if if, if you if, we we tried, to, I mean, Abercrombie basically tried to stop London growing after the war by creating new towns and overspilling population and so on, and it stalled the economy of the city. In the seventies, London was it was in recession. Um, since it's been allowed to grow, first under Livingstone and now under Bo- and Johnson, it's actually the economy is now booming and it's driving the rest of the country. And we in Manchester are getting the benefit because we're getting overspill from that. We're getting people moving out of London and coming to Manchester because you can buy a decent house in Manchester for the price of a shoebox in London. So it's starting to, to affect um, other places as well. Cities need to grow. So that's the dynamic that Jane Jacobs talked about. As soon as it's like sharks, as soon as they stop swimming, they die. As soon as cities stop growing, they, they start to... But, to, but to growing
4: impact. within its belt boundaries. It's not been growing... I mean, it wouldn't yeah. be as dynamic and successful yeah. if it mm-hmm. hadn't been allowed to sprawl. So it's, it's growing, but it's growing internally, as yeah. it were. I go back to good old Shoreditch. I don't know how many of you read
1: <laughs> The Trial of the Jago by Arthur Morrison. It inspired the very so, first social housing that was built in this country, and that was built in Shoreditch, the Boundary Street Estate. And that was about a poor boy called Dickie Parrot where things, living in this slum, things went from bad to worse. This estate was built in the 1890s and it was well-built. And it still stands there handsomely doing a proper job. It was well-planned, well-built and stays there. And that lesson should have been learned and applied forevermore. It hasn't been. The reality of that
2: boundary estate was that there were quite a large number of people who weren't able to move into the new estate. When it was newly built, afterwards, a large percentage of the lower, lower um, income portion of people who had lived in the slum for weren't able to afford the rents on the new boundary estate. <coughs> which is exactly what's happening now. People being moved out <coughs> and aren't going to be able to afford to move back into the new, lovely housing estates that built for them because they can't afford it. That's exactly what happened back then. Lovely as it was and fantastic as it was, then to live in, uh, it was still slum. It was still, you know, a clearance of, of, of population. That was
1: the wrong thing. But who did move in there?
2: The respectable working classes were allowed to move in.
1: But they still still needed affordable places to live?
2: Yeah, but it's how they defined respectable. Well, uh, (laughs) at That 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 time was quite problematic.
0: (laughs) Right. Uh, We'll go now to the back. Um, There's the gentleman there, and then we'll go uh, over here after that.
8: Hi, um, I'm David Lomax. I'm an architect. Um, I live in a shared ownership house and I had to borrow some money from my parents to get deposits deposit together for that. And I was quite interested in Loretta's point about the kind of fetishization of, of home ownership and the way that, that buy to let, uh, sorry, um, Right to Buy has uh, brought that about. But I think what's quite interesting is the idea that there's a kind of cycle there in that um, all those people have seen properties rise, they've done very well off the back of that, but they're now having to fund their children, i.e. me, to join in the same cycle. Um, and at the same time, what's happening is they're seeing around them the tradition of either a generous state pension or even a kind of final salary pension for working for local authority or or any of those sorts of things collapse around them. Um, And I was just wondering if the panel had anything to say about a kind of a wider economic challenge. The, what we've talked about is the kind of, if I go back to my A-level geography, go back to the kind of up versus Malthus. So we're all kind of talking about mother is the nature of invention. We'll find a way. We'll build more houses. We'll sort it out. But I wonder if there's a kind of economics of finite resources, the kind of Malthusian option, which says that there's a natural correction in this for the children of the generation who, who um, had right to buy. Actually, they won't have the financial resources to, to donate to their children in the same way and sustain that market and that bubble. Um, and they also won't have a state pension, there'll be kind of... And you see a lot of government policy directed toward trying to build a viable private pension market in a funny sort of way, asking the private sector to step into the pension market in the same way they ask the private sector to step into the, um, into the housing market. So I wonder if the panel has anything to say about that kind of wider economic challenge and whether um, in a little way, in a certain way we're being a bit myopic by only talking about housing to solve the housing crisis.
0: Okay, and, and what... Take the question
6: here. Hi, yeah. Um, my name is Jenny Greenwood. I'm also an architect. Um, I just want to say that you all seem to agree that we do need this change, um, and this talk of where, sort of how we can start establishing that, and where where should we get this creativity from, um, who takes the lead with it, and where do we can? How do we start maintaining the quality of these homes that you're talking about? Sort of, who's gonna? Is it the professionals, or is it politics, or? a mix of both, but sort of what are the next steps forward?
0: <coughs> okay, so how do we maintain quality and then the wider economic challenges? Mm-hmm. Again, the first question was sort of aimed at you, Reta. Do you want to respond first? Yeah,
2: I mean, I think social mobility is a real problem. My children are not going to be as socially mobile as I was. And I think, you know, the relationship between social mobility and the property you buy and how you... You know buy up in these properties that increases your social mobility is one that's in ground into this culture that we live in and it is breaking down but i don't think the solution is just council housing i think one of the solutions is also to decommodify in other ways from self-build to uh, community land trusts there are lots and lots of different examples that we worked on in the the work i've been doing with the london tenants federation But I think um, one of the things that we're not (coughs) doing is being creative enough. Part of the problem that we're not able to be creative enough is because it's almost like government policy makers have got all the power. The planners have got much less power. The local authorities have got much less power now. And if we don't kind of take up kind of (coughs) up ideas rather than these kind of top-down political kind of persuasive things that are, you know, flavour of the moment but going to disappear five years down the line then we're stuck. But at the moment, because of neoliberalisation and the kind of rollback of the welfare state, we're in an awkward situation.
0: James, do you you respond? Because, I mean, you talked a little bit about the possibilities in Shoreditch that were essentially allowed by this this kind of, you, you sensed it as an opportunity. So it's a sort of the market worked in some ways in terms of bringing investment into that area. I mean, do you want to sort of counter yeah, that?
7: Well,
1: it, it did and, and that investment has gone in there. You know, the, the people t- chose to sort of pay ex, you know, a lot of money for these lofts, they like them. And again, those, those people who sold on have moved out to, to other places and hopefully they will help to, to, to they've gone down to the, to the coast to Hastings and the like and hopefully they'll be able to sort of inspire people down there. But, you know, my my view on on, on, on life is what do we aspire to in life? I mean, my my father said that in life, one should have a child, build a house and plant a tree. (laughs) I mean, our government, the government, yes, it it can't look just to fund affordable housing out of housing. You know, good housing starts at home. The government needs to find proper funding for housing. It is a, it's a, it's a serious, it is something we all need, the opportunity to live, you know, it's somewhere. And, our, and, 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 and my belief is that, that actually laws need to be brought in which said, say for each development only so many foreigners can buy, only foreign, so many foreign investors can buy, so you don't see all lights off in certain sort of tower blocks. I think that governments of significance can make such plans, we have compulsory purchase, you know, uh, law law, to, to, as the moment we need to, and, we, and uh, which is good, we need to the, the, the actual control of land needs to be fairly <laughs> but properly done, and, and governments need to be significant with it.
0: Thanks. I thought you were going to speak in favour of the market, but actually,
1: oh, I'm in favour of the market, <laughs> but the
0: market, you know, the market. Yes, I'm in favour of it, but
9: yeah.
3: can I try and answer the two questions, though, just quickly? Um, when we were doing our Wilson thing, we came across data which we had to check twice, which said the house price in Germany have not gone up at all in real terms since 1973. They are the same prices in linked in terms of the economy as they were, and the equivalent figure in the UK is 2000% increase in house prices. <laughs> um, now, in Germany, when, when you allocate land for development, the value of that land is, is pegged at the value that it was prior to it being allocated. In the UK, you allocate some land for housing, all of a sudden it goes from £15,000 a a hectare for agricultural land to £2.5 million a hectare. Um, And that is then passed over in terms of the house prices, it's passed over in terms of how little you can actually spend, which answers the quality issue. So you wouldn't believe what one of the, the volume house builders spend on a new house. You would not believe how little they spend to build that house. They put a fortune into the land, they spend virtually nothing on building the house itself, which is why we have such crap housing in this country. Because there's no money left to spend on the housing, even less to spend on the open space and the tram system and the shops and the schools and so on, once you've paid that fortune for the land. So that's what we need to deal with to deal with both that issue and, and the quality one.
1: As a, and I'm a fairly charged with it, I might agree with you. As, as, as someone in the market, the deals you remember are the ones you miss out on. And one deal that I missed out on, I could uh, try to get a big investor to buy it for 10.1 million. I think we sold for around 10 million, was the old Truman Brewery site. Seven and a half acres in Brick Lane was sold in 1991 to 1992 for for 10 million pounds, around 10 million pounds. And that now is worth 900 plus million, who knows? All
5: right,
0: next next two questions. there's one, one at the back there and then we'll go over here then we'll come back down to you at the front.
10: Uh, thanks. Um, I'm, an, I'm an architect as well. I actually work for Richard Rogers, who David you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh, and him and I would, arg- would argue that the uh, compact um, polycentric cities is the only real f- uh, sustainable form of development. Um, and you, when you look at the amount of people that commute into the centre of London, you think there must be a capacity to for, uh, for other centres around London um, and sort of spreading the the balance of growth outwards uh, and do you think there's a capacity for for this in other regional cities um, for this idea of polycentric growth uh, similar to the the rural area in Germany?
0: Before we answer that, we'll just go to the question on that.
11: Hi, I'm Emma. I'm a researcher at the London School of Economics. Um, Thank you very much for your very thought-provoking contributions and I attended the the previous events as well and I think you're right that everyone it sounds like is in agreement that we need more homes and indeed the march for homes that occurred in London last week shows that many people who live in London agree but my question is about the people who maybe don't agree and i actually live in st Albans city and district council so it's on the green belt and we talked a little bit about um, the beleaguered planners who have the kind of unenviable task of um, trying to kind of pass their local plans through both what the you know what they will come up against an in investigation but also what their constituents are demanding and so my question is when we agree that we need new housing be that through densification of the suburbs or be that through looking at opening up parts of the greenbelt what strategies are there for engaging with the public that maybe doesn't quite see the need and, and we can call them NIMBYs but I don't think they all are you know, not in my backyard they just don't understand why here why in my community why does this make sense and so I'm just curious if the panel has any ideas about how you engage you know the public in this, in this conversation <coughs>
0: well david can we respond to that and then we can come to the
3: uh i'll come back to that in, in, the, in a second we had a whole section in our <coughs> part, part of the wilson prize was to say how could you, how could you make it popular mm-hmm. which of course is the difficult bit um and, and we suggested a deal and, and the deal um by which the um currently housing is spilling out in little dribs and drabs in every every every, every, every suburb every village and so on and what we're saying take that away and put it into one confident bite. So the deal is that actually one, you put it in one place rather than it, everyone <coughs> suffering. You do so in a way which for every acre you develop, you create a, a, an acre of open space, um, which is publicly available. You do so in a way which invests in, in, in infrastructure and public transport and so on. And we've tried that out in quite a few communities and actually there's, there's a deal to be done, I think. Um, and so it, 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 there's not enough time to go into the, all the detail of that, but I, I, it, it's, it's difficult case to make, but I think there is a case to make. In terms of Richard, um, as he knows, because I've spoken to him about it, I agree entirely about the polycentric approach. Our Oster pro- uh, proposal was a polycentric approach to the growth of existing cities and, it, and we started, the first line says don't build garden cities, they don't work. Um, uh, we, said, we said expand existing cities and do so in a way which is which is urban. Richard's point, which goes slightly beyond that, and that where, where, I, where I have sympathy with him, is that Allowing greenfield development takes the pressure off urban development and that doesn't matter massively in London because there will always be pressure for developments in London. But if you're in Manchester where I live, if we lo- allowed large areas of greenfields around Manchester to be developed, the incentive to build within the urban area of Manchester would start to disappear and that would be a bad thing. And so that's why there are different solutions for different places. The solution that we suggested in the Wolfson Prize wouldn't apply to Manchester. Um, it would apply to someone like oxford it wouldn 't apply to London. We were taking that particular place of turning someone said earlier, turning the city in the whole city into a garden city that 's what we were suggesting, and we were using the Garden City term to be honest because that was the purpose of the competition. We could have called it something else if we were not putting the Wilson price entry in
1: can, can I ask one question i don 't know it, Do cities now still have to have a cathedral be called a city <laughs>
3: Oh, we, we, no, we, we, that... we suggest they probably should. Melton Keynes has never managed right. to get city status, has it? No. Uh,
2: okay,
0: well, we'll take another two. There's still lots of hands coming up. So I said we'll come back down here. So we should. And then, and then the gentleman
12: behind. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Yes, haven't waited so long, I've actually had. Big chunk of my question already answered. But um, <laughs> I was interested in to what extent you feel that um, people in power, the politicians' reluctance to alienate their electoral base is actually skewing planning decisions and planning in general away from what we need. I was thinking specifically of London, the fact that we have um, inner city estates being knocked down basically and rebuilt in some was spurious, some spurious affordable housing provision. They're being knocked down, not because actually they're not dense enough and that's where we need densification, but because the people who are living there are disenfranchised and unable to fight back, and crucially because the land is valuable. The suburbs are not being densified because there is more resistance there. And... Those, uh, the votes of those people are more significant... Well, okay, I'm actually answering my own question. Do you agree? <laughs> but to what extent do you think that that, that reluctance to um, address densification in the suburbs for political reasons is actually deforming our city planning process?
0: So, so in some ways, that's sort of the, the, the heart of the matter. I mean, one can call for state intervention, but when the people who vote are the ones with significant assets, significant debts tied to property, are we going to expect any significant change from the from the politicians? Can I put that to the to the whole panel? I, mean, I think there's
2: also a politics around urban regeneration, that we've been hit by this kind of urban regeneration obsession, and in fact Richard Rogers is probably to blame. His urban task force was really little more than <coughs> identify charter. You know, a, so a, what, chart? a gentrifiers' uh, charter. Uh, as well as you know, the <laughs> idea was we, we go to Barcelona, we import some cu- coffee bars, and you know, we're all going to sit and sip coffee outside in lovely weather and have a nice time. The reality is that England's very different. <laughs> the weather's not as good, but the problem here is that people have latched onto this urban regeneration obsession, and it isn't urban regeneration; it is gentrification. They're not seeing it as a holistic process whereby, you know, we regenerate our cities for everybody in a socially just and a socially democratic way. And part of the reason is because there's big money to be made. And wheeling back from that is very problematic.
3: From a northern perspective, I disagree entirely Well, I'm talking about London. Okay, with London, yeah. yeah. I mean, 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 Manchester lost... It's totally half different. its population from 1961 to 1991 mm-hmm. and it was the middle classes left Yes, I mean you know, the people who left were the, were the people yeah. with the money and having them come back as they have done as a result of Richard Rogers' task force is a fantastic thing for the city and it's regenerated that and we have cafes and people sit in them and they do drink <laughs> coffee out <laughs> <and> <laughs> <even in Eastern. laughs> believe it or not <laughs> even in Manchester they do yeah
4: Well, just a, a, a quick... Go. I mean, the thing I should have said at the beginning, is there is a lot of brownfield land. CPRE did a report uh, a month or two ago showing that there's enough viable brownfield land in, uh, for, for, to build a million houses, and a lot of it's in London and in the southeast. And then there's land that's not deemed viable. I, I understand about 50% of the brownfield land in London is just traded on big companies' balance sheets and will never be developed because it's kind of used as a... Uh, as a, for speculation uh, as an asset, so there's a lot of brownfield land before you get to the greenfield. On the point about densifying suburbs, that was happening, and it was happening because there was a financial interest in it, and it was back garden development, and that was stopped. But you know, there were a lot of people in the suburbs who were quite happy to <laughs> knock down their house and build flats, or to convert, or to have developments in their garden. The problem has been planning it, and that's the third point, And I sort of resisted answering the question earlier from the guy with a beard, because I didn't want to go on a sort of Spartus rant which would offend my members because I think this is being taped, but there is a real problem. <laughs> I, you know, blocked the tape out, but there is a real a sort of underlying problem that we are, we are committed and have been for 30 or 40 years to a very low tax base and to rising inequality in the country, and until you address those things, then you're going to get the sort of housing problems that we've got at the moment, and we sorted some of these problems out, certainly in terms of building houses when this country was an awful lot poorer than it is now. Mm-hmm. But now we don't invest that money in, in proper solutions to what is a, a major social crisis. We, uh, and that is a, a matter of cowardice politicians. But they have to get elected. I used to be one. <laughs> um, and <What's>
0: behind there?
13: <coughs> Hello, um, Peter George Culper. I'm a um, chartered surveyor as well. Um, and um, do uh, development finance, run a company that does development finance for small residential developers. Um, it's not so much a question, just a comment about this th- this seemingly kind of black and white divide between what the public sector is responsible for and what the private sector is responsible for. Do you not think, and I put this to all four of you, that the private sector, private developers, particularly smaller ones, um, have been saddled with an impossibly large void to try to fill, that it's not so much a lack of will um, on their part to to pick up this slack in house building as um, the fact that it's impossible for them to do so. The average developer, as I think David said, will spend an enormous amount of money on the land and have very little left over. Basically, you're spending money, spending money, spending money, spending money, and hopefully, if all goes right and the market doesn't turn at some point in that pipeline, you get it all back at the end. It's an enormous amount of risk. In the meantime, Uh, We've got Section 106 agreements. We've got SIL. We have, effectively, punishment being put on to supply whilst help to buy is coming in to incentivise demand, um, which just sends the whole thing even further and further down. I'm just wondering what everyone's take is on that, Um, possibly be the only person in the room speaking out in defence of the private sector. Well,
1: I I certainly am for private development. I want to make it clear. I mean you, you with, with, with the market, markets change, and developers should give me the respect for taking risk. And when something changes, you cannot buck a market. And as soon as I saw in 86 to 88, the market go up by, by 200%, great, people got involved. And then it went down the next 12 months by 50%. So give these private developers the credit. And what I think about, this is a a, 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 a a better London is better a better London with proper affordable housing and and, and knowing where we stand with planning is better for private developers better for, for everyone yes in, in my heart I, I am a socialist with the capital s I believe in the partnership of man and you know i don 't and i you know, that's, that's that's. I hope you do as well, you, you know. Why, for instance, one thing I, is why about council housing. From my research, I find that, that <coughs> no council house this country, has been built with a bow window. It's with a bow window. <laughs> why is that? People, you know, bow windows? Why, why come a bow window a council house? The, uh, but one, one thing I find is shocking is that 30 to 40% of all London's land is owned by the, the, the local authorities. Why aren't they doing more? Mm, that's a good point.
0: So in, in some ways, we're, we're talking about the state as a kind of enabler for, for private development in some ways.
4: Yeah, can I say, I mean, some of my best friends are house builders. Nobody's having a go at house builders. You don't, <laughs> you don't expect them to kind of get their fingers burnt again by, by massively, you know, building loads more houses if there's not a market for them. The, the naivety of governments who think that house builders are going to build lots and lots more houses to drive prices down is is, is stunning. The problem is with, with the rising price of land. And you've got to find a way of uh, enabling local authorities and, and others to uh, assemble parcels of land and then get decent developments on that land. But if, if, you, if you don't do what we did when we built Milton Keynes, which is to uh, you know, not allow the landowner to, to have a kind of huge um, lottery-style bonus is you, the state's got to be more muscular about it and has got to capture that land that uplift in land value which comes with planning permission, and and we've lost that confidence. Right.
0: More hands going up here. So, oh uh, yeah, we'll come to you next. So we'll take these these two here and then we'll come over here.
6: Hello, uh, my name's Ellie Thomas. I'm a researcher at the Center for Cities. Um, I wanted to ask a bit about the Green Belt, uh, which is obviously really key to this debate, um, and a really emotive issue, as well as being really significant. Um, I think we seem to be quite an enlightened audience, but a lot of people don't really understand the purpose of the Green Belt, or (coughs) the reality of what (coughs) the Green Belt is all about. And lots of people have done lots of research into this, like Paul Cheshire, who said, you know, Actually, a lot of the Greenbelt is low-amenity land, which could be built on. Um, and there might be some problem, in fact, in calling it the Greenbelt. Um, what I really want to ask is, what is your impression of taking a new approach to the whole idea of, uh, of land around cities that can be used to, to prevent sprawl? Um, I want to quote a case study from Leipzig in Germany. They have something called the Leipzig-Hal Green Ring, which is an area of land around the city which is, rather than having specified uh, restrictions on development, they have a committee which meets and decides on the basis of a number of factors whether or not certain kinds of development should go ahead, what's in the best interest of the city, of landowners. Um, It's it's a partnership committee. and together, they tend to sort of decide on whether or not a particular project could go forwards. Do you think that this kind of approach might be a better way of moving forwards with development around our cities and actually moving beyond the sort of stasis of this debate, which is sitting in mud at the moment with people really under no proper idea of what the Green Belt is all about? So that's my question.
0: Okay, thanks. And then we'll go here before we answer question
10: thanks Um, I've kind of got a comment um, partly about the land value and the fact that surely it's partly a cyclical problem whereby developers go in to make huge profits and by raising the amount of money, the return that they want to get back from those places that adds to the increase of land value because it's not a sort of it's not removed from their power. And the kind of second point is to do with the Section 106 payments and SIL and things like that, which maybe in the case of smaller developers, you could argue that it, it prevents them from developing um, in a kind of positive way. But I think in the case of most big developers, to argue that if the Section 106 payments were there or they didn't make SIL payments, that they would either increase the um, quality of housing that they provided or, out of some sort of goodwill, that they would provide more social housing because they didn't have to provide the bare minimum through SIL payments, I think is quite absurd. Um, and I think it's quite necessary to have those things in place, like SIL payments, where they support local schools. They provide uh, more funding for GPs, the local infrastructure, and so on. So, um, just to hear some comments about
0: that from the panel. Okay. Do we want to go to the <coughs> disparity between the perception and reality of Greenbelt and a sort of planning by consent committee on the on the more of the German Leipzig model? Would you answer that first? Would I you do, like to go? Just on, on the i do the green belt. I, I mean the. Of course,
4: there is low-value uh, land in the Greenbelt, and that's partly because Greenbelts are on the edge of cities, it's very pressured, and you know, wherever the city went to, there's going to be sort of edge lands, and there's also going to be land that, which has a hope value, and it's quite easy for a landowner to say, let's run this land down, it's awful, it's got fly tipping on it, let's develop it. So there's always going to be that problem, and the answer is to uh, increase the, the amenity and environmental value of the Green Belt, not just to give up on it. But actually, it's a myth to suppose that the Green Belt isn't, that it's all uh, inaccessible, it's all ghastly, monocultural, farmland, it's whatever. The the, the report, uh, which grows food, <laughs> the report... The, the most thorough report on the value of the Greenbelt, I think, was one that CPRE did in 2005 with Natural England, which is on our website. And it shows that Greenbelt land has uh, more biodiversity, more uh, country parks, more rights-of-way, more, more woodland, more of a whole lot of indicators than equivalent non-Greenbelt land on the age of cities that don't have Greenbelt, that have green wedges or less defendable Uh, planning designation. So the green belt is not as good as we'd want it to be. We'd love everybody to be getting into the green belt, walking in it, enjoying its beauty, uh, eating local food from it, etc., etc. But but it still is of very high value compared with other land around cities, which is inevitably very pressured land. And one example, um, you give lots of examples, but there's a particular bit of land between Upminster and Basildon which was a site of a major battle, development battle, when, when Nicholas Ridley was Environment Secretary, and it was going to be developed for housing because it was it was ex quarry land, which was inaccessible, run down, kind of awful, no no biodiversity value, no amenity value, didn't grow any food or whatever. Uh, there was a tenacious, bloody-minded defence of that green belt on the grounds that it should not be developed because that was against the purpose of the Green Belt and it was always a planning condition that it should be returned to the Green Belt after the quarry was exhausted. And it's now a community forest and a fantastic amenity. And if it hadn't been built, then simply you'd have upminster sprawling into Basildon. And you can have examples like that all over the place. So, um, you know, Paul Cheshire, uh, respectable economist, no doubt, but don't believe anything he says about the green belt. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Can I? Um, the, the two bits of the Planning Act, which are the land value and the green belt. I mean, we, we, we had some discussions um, last month with Norwich, which believe it or not doesn't have a green belt. Um, we're in York last week, and York never actually agreed its green belt. It's never been actually ratified the green belt around York, and these places haven't actually expanded. Um, actually, planning policy is the thing that stops. Expanding. Having said that, the green, green belt is a really good thing. It has stopped us becoming America. It has stopped our cities sprawling in, you know, for, forever. And it's actually helped regeneration. And the, 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 the you know, cities in the north didn't survive as well as they might have done, but they would have been worse had it not been for the green belts. Mm-hmm. And with that all said, it doesn't mean that there has to be set in stone forever. And the suggestion that you make about a mechanism for sensible discussion about the release of green belt through positive planning is a good thing. And we would support that. In terms of land value, the, the thing about the, the 1947 Planning Act was that it nationalised land, land development rights. It took away everyone's right to develop land, and apparently it paid compensation for it at the time. And every time we give Planning permission, we give a little bit of that value back. So we're actually giving people value. And the whole process of SIL and Section 106 <coughs> is an incredibly inefficient way of trying to claw back a little bit of that value to spend on the things that the value should be spent on. Actually, when you... Paying two and a half million pounds per, per hectare for land, it isn't, to be honest, the house builders who make them. Sometimes they get lucky and they manage to buy a piece of land and get planning commission and, uh, and, and make the value. But most of it is the land agents and the farmers and the, the owners and all the planning consultants who basically work the system. That's where <laughs> the value goes. Um, and that value, which goes into the pockets of those people, in Germany is spent on building quality places. Um, it's as simple as that. Uh, and SIL is incredibly inefficient. It's actually 160 even worse method of achieving that. So I'm not saying get rid of it because I'm not saying allow the developers to get away with not spending that money but I'm saying get a much more efficient way of, of of getting the land value so that the small developers then don't get burdened with that stuff because they're buying land at a cheaper price. The money is being used to spend on the schools and stuff that you need for the housing and then a whole range of players can play in the housing market.
0: Okay, We've got time just for one more question so we'll come
9: here and then Without speakers, of a final comment. Hi. Uh, my name's Paul Coleman. I'm a writer and researcher on urban regeneration. Um, just a bit surprised, James, that you didn't mention the successful campaign by the New Era uh, residents um, on their estate when they successfully managed to stop American property company Westbrook from buying, um, buying up their estate and tripling their rents, as was reported. Um, but I just heard last night some, just to move on slightly, some figures I uh, heard quoted about the Elephant Castle in terms of regeneration. The Haygate estate, which is now demolished, um, 1,200 homes has been lost. The Aylesbury estate, another 2,700 7, homes uh, planned to go in there to replace them in the Elephant Castle. There are six developments. Um, including Tribeca Square, the Strata Tower, and Elephant Park, four thousand two hundred and twenty new homes of which i 'm um, reliably told only one hundred and eight <coughs> will be socially rented units equivalent to former council rents so I just quote that again four thousand two hundred and twenty new homes in the Elephant Castle, but only one hundred and eight will be equivalent to former council rents that were offered at the Haygate and at the Aylesbury Estate. Um, many of those new homes might be buy-to-let um, in terms of their sort of future uh, ownership and tenure. Loretta, you did say you, know, you wanted to see abolished right-to-buy, uh, but what do you think is worse, uh, right-to-buy or buy-to-let?
2: Both. <laughs> Um, Can I just say the Haygate estate has zero social rented housing going back on that estate. So all of the tenants that we've looked at have been displaced to either Greater London, but increasingly to places like Hastings, (coughs) places along the kind of Kent coast, which have become benefit kind of dumping grounds. Also, some of the London councils have developed relationships with councils in the north, including in places like Manchester and further north, and some of those tenants (coughs) have been dumped into council estates up there.
0: James, I,
1: I, can, can, I yeah, can I say, you, you look at me as like the, the private market, the private market is to blame. It's not. <laughs> the private market was in, works within the law. Human nature, you do what you can. I mean, a, you know, a, a, a private developer will work out his view of the gross development value. He'll, and from there, he'll take away costs. He's got to pay for affordable, for other, other such payments. And a huge cost he's got to pay for architecture. And then, <laughs> and then he'll work out what profit he wants to make. And then he'll make the offer for land. I didn't mention your estate, but I was very close to it because my financial uh, assistant's, uh girlfriend is mother. child is was in charge of that, Lindsay. I forget her surname. She she was of Russell Brand, so really, sort of Lindsay, making music out.
0: Yeah, yeah. Are talking in the next event, by the way? I was oh, pointing <laughs> that out. Yeah. 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 Great lady. But
1: I also, you know, I also would like to say that that uh, you know. I didn't mention the Corville Estate either. The Corville Estate in 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 Shoreditch, next to Shoreditch Park, is, is 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 being planned properly, and we're talking about turning 438 sort of uh, council council units into sort of 900, and everybody living with them being respected, and that's the way it should be.
2: That's not the way it is across most of London. Though. Yes, the vast indeed. majority of the states that have been regenerated have been socially financed.
0: And who the blame? The politicians, ultimately.
2: And the local authorities.
0: <laughs> well, on that happy note, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think, I think we will uh, we will draw things to a close. I will not try to sum up what has been a very wide-ranging <laughs> and fascinating debate. But please uh, join me in thanking our speakers. I'd just like to say just a couple more things uh, to thank our supporters this evening, the Drew Heinz Endowment for Architecture and Turkish Ceramics, and to point out that there's an exhibition which accompanies this season of events. It's called Four Visions for the Future of Housing. It's just opened in the RA's architecture space. It's a free space. Uh, it involves uh, May, Fifth Studio, Dallas Pierce-Quintero, and Sarah Wigglesworth. And each of those uh, architects will be talking about their proposals at separate events later in the season. The first is on the 27th of February with Alex Ely of May. So please do join us then. And just to invite everyone now for a drink through the double doors at the back of the room. You'll find a bar waiting for you to help yourself. But please join me in thanking our speakers once again.